Hello, Joachim. Brian here, and today I want to invite you to reflect because I don't have a specific question on the relationship between beauty or quality and aesthetic enjoyment. More specifically, how do you see the attempt to produce beautiful things or things that are qualitatively good as affecting your ability for aesthetic appreciation both within that domain and outside of it. Hey, Brian. Lovely to hear from you. Thank you for your non-question. I will gladly reflect on these concepts with you. Before I do so, I think I would like to find some clarity about what exactly it is that you're pointing at. So I will ask you a question if you don't mind. Or two, actually. The first is, how do you see the difference between beauty or quality? Because you seem to group them together in your statement. And for me, they feel meaningfully different. And then the second question is, when you speak of an attempt to produce beauty or quality, are you referring to my attempt to do so? Or more in general to the attempts of humanity, let's say? So to your first question, I see beauty and quality as being deeply linked. In fact, I might say that beauty is something like well-made or well-chosen. And so I can see that there might be cases where something beautiful is not of great quality. And I can also see the idea that you could have something that is of quality but not beautiful. And yet, I kind of feel like they, there is some kind of link there. As for your second question, I would say that I'm most interested in your experience. But I would invite you to reflect more broadly as well. So I suppose if you want to reframe it, I'm happy for you to talk about the difference between beauty and quality, which I do think there is one, or to take either beauty or quality, whichever one has been more of a driving factor in your attempt to create or express things now or in the past. But to reflect, first of all, on your own experience, maybe. <laughs> I don't know. Did that help? Hmm. 
Yes. I think I see what you mean. I've always struggled with this because for me, quality very often is a property of something. You know, what is the quality of this experience? Whereas I believe in the way you use it now, you're referring more to good quality, as in being well made. And I think there is indeed an overlap with beauty. But I think it's smaller in my mind than it is in yours, perhaps. Here's the thing. Beauty for me very often is about the experience. It's about the way that I create an experience for myself. In that sense, maybe it's related to what John Cage would say about what music is. You know, something like music is whatever someone listens to as music. And I think there's something similar with beauty where when I walk on the street and a ray of light flows through a tree and I see a leaf, you know, shivering in the light and I'm struck with the beauty of that scene. I see that as beauty by intention almost. It's because of my looking. And I wouldn't say the tree or the sun are particularly qualitative or well-made. They just are. And I'm curious how you relate to such an experience or if for you beauty is more about human-made things. So it's a great question whether I find man-made objects as the primary source of beauty. I did say well-made or well-chosen. And I do think that choosing this process of cultivating attention does affect our appreciation of beauty. I think that beauty is, as you said, always experiential, and therefore it arises between a subject and object. It neither inheres in the object, in the sun or the leaf, as you said, nor is it purely in the eye of the beholder. And therefore, although I love the John Cage quote, I would just push back a little and say, even if we can cultivate an appreciation for beauty by affecting the way we attend to things, we can't produce beauty, or at least we can't produce the same type of beauty. We may be able to find many different types of object beautiful, but the object does affect the experience of beauty, even very similar objects. I would say. As for whether it's about man-made things, in a certain sense, no, not only. But I do think that beauty ultimately derives from, and I can't say how, pleasure and pain. And that pleasure and pain for us are first social. They are about attachment and separation in 
in early life. I'm especially thinking of the mother, but I think the quality of attention which we receive is the first kind of pleasure and pain, basically. And that all other types of beauty are built as a kind of edifice on this first pleasure and pain. Therefore, even appreciation of nature is secondary to appreciation of people and of connections with people. And I think we can find things beautiful, choosing, well-chosen. But I'm interested in your process of making something beautiful. And I think that's where I was going with the initial question. To make a beautiful song, to make an experience beautiful, to make beautiful art. Is this process of making something beautiful the same as the process of finding something beautiful? And I'm curious about how striving to make something beautiful or to do something well relate for you and how that process affects your appreciation of beauty. I really like this idea of beauty arising from the experience of attachment and separation as a child. I had never considered this before. And there's something there that kind of intuitively makes some kind of sense. And yet there are many ways in which I find things beautiful that maybe don't entirely fit that model. But maybe that's just a, a lack of awareness or a lack of understanding of the process in me. Maybe at a deeper level, indeed, that tracks back to those experiences. And I wonder then if my sense of beauty and my perception of beauty was changed or maybe is different from other people's because I had so many attachment problems in early childhood, you know, trauma. So that would be an interesting exploration in itself. But I want to come to answer your actual question, which is about the creation of beauty or that process and how that influences the perception of it, right? So I guess I could answer this question in many different ways, depending on the role that I take in the story. And I want to go back for a, for a bit to when I was an artist, when I was creating music. And there in that process, when I think about it, it's strange to say, perhaps, but I don't think the pursuit of beauty was necessarily my main quest. I didn't really think about, hey, let's make a beautiful song or let's make a beautiful piece of music. I think for me, it was much more about something that I found fascinating or exciting in, in sound, in my experience of sound or in relationships, in my experience of how musicians relate to each other on a stage, 
or how the musicians relate to the audience and the other way around, or how the composer fits in all of that. So very often my, my purpose, I guess, with writing the music that I did was to research and explore those things that I found interesting. And then sometimes the result would be beautiful, according to me or according to others. And sometimes maybe it wasn't, but that also wasn't the point. So it kind of still worked. And I believe there's something interesting there. I think that perhaps my experience of beauty is related to people not trying to make something beautiful. It's kind of an effortless byproduct almost. And I notice this very often also when I see other people perform their art or their creative output of some sort. I'm usually very, very touched by... I would name it as people who don't have very well-developed technical means, but who are very honest in their expression. And I think that is so incredibly beautiful. And in that sense, I think you are right when you say that beauty is mostly about human connection or the relationship with other humans. And I'm, I'm curious how that manifests for you when you write, for example. Yeah, I too love this idea that beauty is first social, first human, maybe even first mammalian, and that it applies in the first instance to relations with other living things, and only laterally to other objects. So it's by extension that we can find objects beautiful. I almost said landscapes, but I think landscapes are alive. And I almost said music, but I think music is alive too. So maybe the leap in beauty from a relationship with a person to a relationship with a piece of music is less distance than we might initially think. I also loved what you said about attachment issues and how they might explain a more intense experience or need for beauty. Maybe attachment issues could cause a greater need to be seen and heard. There's the kind of commonplace of the suffering artist. And I think it's far too simple to be a causal relationship. At the same time, it's too prevalent <laughs> to be nothing at all. I think there is a correlation. This is what leads people to say, I can't write because I didn't suffer enough as a child, which I, of course, don't think is true. Or 
they say something about the suffering of artists that they note a correlation, let's say, between difficult childhoods and artistic adulthoods. <laughs> and it might be some issue of attunement, right? An attunement with the caregiver. If the attention isn't stable enough, the need for attention continues to grow. And I wonder what you think about that. I liked what you said or implied that beauty is not teleological. It can't be an end. Although perhaps it is sometimes a byproduct of pursuing what's fascinating or exciting. And I love that idea that it's a kind of side effect of some other pursuit. There's an idea that some things are best not pursued directly. The ideals of the French Revolution, liberté, égalité, fraternité, and yet if you try to enforce them, they can lead to their opposites. Or the pursuit of sleep, where effort tends to produce the opposite effect. Trying not to try. In Taoism, there's a term called Wu Wei, effortless action. So there's a certain sense in which you can't be striving directly for beauty. But if you strive towards something else, beauty can be produced as a side effect. Romantic relationships are another place where too direct a pursuit can be off-putting, shall we say. <laughs> I sometimes think of effort made and then relaxed. And I wonder if there's something about relaxing into the beautiful after striving towards some kind of perfection. And what that perfection means, well, I invite you to reflect if it's not quality and it's not beauty, but it's something fascinating, exciting, interesting. And there's a form of playfulness that I sense in what you're saying. Richard Hofstadter said, the characteristic features of the intellectual are the intense mixing of two opposing tendencies, one towards playfulness and one towards piety. And so I wonder what you think about playful experimentation within constraints as it relates to music. I also loved what you said about the value of honest expression over technical ability. I recently read a section of War and Peace about Natasha's early attempts at singing. It is itself so beautiful that I'll send it to you 
may be included in the show notes. It's just about how beautiful an unpolished voice can be. And even as you complain about how unpolished it is, you can't stop listening somehow. As for writing, there may be more of a separation than there is in singing. There's both content and form in writing. Maybe in singing too, in the lyrics. But it's more intense in nonfiction where you make a point. The point may stand whether it's beautiful or not. It can be rephrased in ways that are more or less beautiful. And yet the point is still at the heart of it. And I wonder if there is a point in songs in the same way. Or is it that the music itself is the point? Yes, thank you for sharing, Brian. I really appreciate your thoughts. There are four things in your message that I want to get back to. Uh, first of all, the beautiful expression, music is alive too. Then I want to say something about the, the meme of the suffering artist. And then there's the section around things that are best not pursued directly, which I think is a very beautiful um, subject to dive into. And then lastly, the idea of content and form being more separate in writing and, and your question if that also applies to music in some way. And then there's a bonus question, <laughs> but I'll get to that. So, music is alive too. I really like how you put this in the framework of beauty being connected to humans or even mammals and then kind of measuring the, the distance towards the human in appreciating beauty. And I guess what you're saying is that music by its very essence, and I think when I say essence here, I refer to the fact that music doesn't really exist unless it is played or performed. And because of that, the distance to the human who is playing or performing is smaller. And then I imagine that also reduces the distance towards the creator. I'm, I'm not sure about this. I mean, I think there's definitely something there to explore. One of the things that comes up for me is that music seems to have some kind of a platonic form, which is very funny coming from someone like me. What I mean is that there is some kind of a, an ideal representation of music that exists in my mind that is nowhere to be found in the real world. And I'll give a simple example. I've always had this kind of perfect recording of Mozart's Requiem in my head. And I've never heard this because it doesn't exist. Every single recording I've heard or every single concert I've heard was far from perfect and I would always desire it to be different in some way 
And so there is in my mind, in my head, some kind of a version of Mozart's Requiem that, to be clear, is not just what is written down, right? Because people would argue there is the the score, and that is kind of like also a platonic form of the music. I, I don't agree with that. I think the score is basically just a set of instructions. And the platonic form exists in my mind and is an interpretation of those instructions according to my preferences, perhaps, and my knowledge. So, yes, music is alive, but music exists on different levels. And I'm not sure in which way this changes the idea that beauty is kind of more connective to the human part of the equation. Because when I think of that Mozart's Requiem in my mind, I don't feel it's related to Mozart at all. So maybe it's a form of relating to self. That's something that comes up for me now. Maybe if I'm alone in my mind with Mozart's Requiem, what I'm really doing is kind of seeing beauty in the way I interpret this piece of art. Maybe. The second theme was the idea or the meme of the suffering artist. And yeah, I love this because I've never thought about this before in this way. I always misunderstood the idea of the suffering artist. For me, when I was an artist in the past, I rejected it because I was like, hey, I don't want to be suffering in order to be an artist. So I want to have a good life and be an artist. But what I didn't understand was that the idea of the suffering artist was not about suffering in the now, but having suffered in the past. And now that is so clear to me that it's almost obvious that there is a direct correlation for me in my life between the ways I have suffered in my childhood as a result of just, you know, normal uh, parental trauma and my expressions as a composer. And then clearly when the trauma was mostly healed, the desire for expressing myself in that way also mostly disappeared. And of course, I don't know if that's true for most artists, but I imagine that there is indeed, like you say, quite a strong correlation um, the good news being there that it's pretty much impossible to avoid childhood trauma. And I think we've spoken about this before. So I guess everyone should have access at least to something uh, that they can then use to transmute into some kind of an artistic expression. And of course, this doesn't exclude the fact that artistic expressions can be created from positive experiences or just from creativity itself. Then the idea that some things are best not pursued directly. I found this fascinating and I was thinking about it and then two things came up. Um, I think there is something uniquely beautiful about the human struggle in itself. I imagine an artist kind of struggling with the, both the creative process and with maybe the matter of the art. Like if you imagine a painter with a, a huge canvas and there's something like a, a hero's journey there of setting out on a quest and then encountering all kinds of difficulties and surmounting them and then arriving at the end when the thing is finished and there's a reward there in some kind of a very inward way um, that I think is important and that we may recognize when we then see the art or when we think about the art and the artist. And I think a part of the beauty is also in honoring that struggle of the artist and seeing that hero's journey, and maybe even projecting ourselves in that. 
And then the other thing that came up is the very simple concept of flow. Um, you know, this state that we enter when we are truly, fully focused on something. I think there's a lot of beauty in the experience of flow and a lot of beauty in the secondhand experience of flow, which is like, you know, looking at an artwork or hearing an artwork or being confronted with some kind of expression and then being reminded of the state of flow that the person producing the thing was probably in while making it. That's definitely something that happens for me. And I'm curious if that's the case for you as well. This applies a lot to literature as well. Like when I read a good book, I definitely feel the appreciation of like imagining the writer being this beautiful state of flow while writing these pages. So yeah, that's, that's an interesting thought. And then finally, I'd like to speak about the question you asked about uh, the difference between literature and music, where in literature you state that, you know, there is a, there is content, there is a message, there is a point, and that point can come across whether or not the writing is beautiful. I think something very similar exists in music indeed, um, and it is very simply what we call functional music, and functional music has a long history. Arguably, functional music was the first kind of music, and throughout history it played an incredibly important role. Functional music was never designed to be beautiful, and whether or not it was perceived as beautiful is kind of not the point. Functional music was just about being used in a certain way to fulfill a certain purpose. And I think, for example, um, as music for rituals, like the Catholic Mass, for example, right? Uh, there are certainly pieces of music that have been written as Catholic Masses that now are seen as beautiful, but back in the day, that didn't matter so much. What mattered was that they created the context in which people could celebrate their religion. And the same goes for all kinds of forms of dance music, perhaps, where it's not about whether or not the music is beautiful, but just about the music creating a context in which you can move your body in certain ways. And the same could be said for perhaps even something like film music, where the point of the music is not to be beautiful, but to enhance the feelings that the filmmaker wants to communicate to the person watching the movie. So yes, I think this distinction between content and form definitely also exists in music, albeit slightly differently. And then there was one more bonus point. Um, you mentioned at some point that romantic relationships may be also something that is best not pursued directly. And I'm fascinated by that idea. And I think we should do a separate series on romantic relationships. Because to be honest, I don't know what the fuck romance means anymore. <laughs> so I'm curious if that interests you. I love this idea that there's a kind of platonic form behind music. You mentioned Mozart's Requiem. It's something that I've been thinking about a lot at the risk of starting a whole new conversation with respect to AI and the conversations that I've been having with Maggie lately about whether there's something behind the text of any given thinker that we have. So Freud, for example, is everything from Freud in the words on the page? 
Or is there something behind that or additional to that? I was also fascinated to hear what you said about the suffering artist and the idea that healing that kind of trauma actually removes or affects the artistic impulse. That's something that I've, I suppose, worried about, and maybe that is part of the suffering artist idea as well, that people worry that if they're too happy, they won't be creative, something like that. And I would love to talk more about things not best pursued directly. I don't know whether I'm a particularly good person to speak to about romance. I have had my romantic periods. Maybe I am resistant to my own inclination in that direction at the moment, but certainly I have had very intense periods of various types of romanticism. And I also liked hearing what you said about flow because I think for me there are kind of good forms of flow that I sometimes get while writing and there's also bad types of flow that I sometimes get while programming (laughs) Uh, or maybe even some types of editing where I go into this kind of spiral that I'm not sure is necessarily the most helpful. Like sometimes I lose contact with what I'm doing. I guess that's one of the definitions of any kind of flow. And I liked hearing about functional music, which I hadn't really thought about before. So yeah, like you said, masses and other music that serves some kind of ritual function or As you said, film scores. I'm very interested in film scores. I did a music of film course at uni, which I loved. It was very eye-opening. And we looked at Eisenstein and, you know, all these great collaborations, Morricone and people like that. Bernard Herrmann, who worked with Hitchcock. And I kind of wanted to turn this conversation back a little bit even though I would love to pick up on any of these threads and ask you more specifically what you felt was lost in terms of your appreciation for music by getting very good as a musician. So I'm curious about that kind of trade-off and how you feel about it. And also, I suppose, if it has reduced now that you're not actively making music. And that's something I've mentioned to you before, that I find it difficult to watch films that I probably would have enjoyed when I was younger. And that seems to be the result of watching many, many really phenomenal films. And I'm just curious to hear you think about that but I know (laughs) there's a lot in this message so yeah I think I'll leave it there and look forward to hearing from you every single point of your message was interesting for me to expand on potentially but I won't in the interest of time 
I want to address or go deeper into two of the points you mentioned. The first is this question of what is behind the text. And you mentioned Freud as an example. And this is related to your exploration of AI, I think, with Maggie, which is something that I'm also quite interested in, if not at all very knowledgeable about. But so, from my perspective, there is something behind the text. When I think about Freud, I think everything is not just in what he has written. I believe there are two other things. One is what I would say is very similar to, in music, what we call performance practice. So when you look at scores from a long time ago, and the further back you go, the more that's true, not everything is notated on the scores. A lot of what's not there was just known. Performance practice. Everybody knows how to perform certain type of music because they lived in the stylistic period that this music existed in. And I think there's something similar for Freud or for any kind of knowledge that is transmitted over time. I think we are close enough to Freud to still have access to memories and stories of people who have known Freud and who have transmitted those stories, maybe orally, maybe even in writing. And so I believe the, the whole of what Freud stands for or what we think of as Freud is not just what he has written in books, but also what has been transmitted by others who actually knew him. And of course, as time progresses, this becomes less and less important, perhaps. But then the other part of that, I believe, is that the way I see the human mind is very much as a model-building machine, and this is where we get close to AI. I believe we have collectively and individually probably built a model of what Freud is, and I think we can have conversations with the model, both in our heads and soon, or actually already, in AI. And... I tend to believe that those models are more accurate than we think at first thought, perhaps. So that's something to think about. The second point I want to go deeper in is what you asked at the end of your message, this idea of what's lost in appreciation of music when getting really good at it, right? And I think there's two threads there that I want to mention. The first is that I remember when I finished my music studies, when I finally got my master's degree, I didn't feel that I had the ability anymore to listen to music. What I mean is that I heard into the music. I heard the techniques. I heard the, the compositional intentions. I heard an analysis of sorts. I heard the relationships between the different elements in the music, but I kind of lost the ability to just hear the music. And it took me a good five years, I think, to gain that back fully. And then there's another thread that I think is related to discernment. The more we are educated about something, the more difficult it becomes to appreciate something of a simpler form let's say. And I think your your example of movies is, is very apt as well. When you've seen many really good movies, then maybe movies that are still touching in some way, but less technically well-made, 
we will seem more difficult to appreciate. I think the two threads are related, and I'm happy to say that I have now regained the ability to enjoy even music that isn't very well made or very clever or very artistic. I can just as well enjoy a good tune on the dance floor. And I'm grateful for that. Thanks, man. I love what you said about Freud, the kind of oral tradition that's been handed down beyond the text of Freud. And for me, it brings to mind Sappho from 600 BC, who still seems to be making her impression on us, even though only a few poems and some fragments, a handful of dust really, remain. And yet her personality seems to have been so intense that we still have a sense of it. Tolstoy also comes to mind. I've thought before that every reprinting of War and Peace is like an echo of an original speech act. Of course, you could say this about every text, but I've thought about the ways in which Tolstoy has been echoed to the present day. And thank you for reflecting on the techniques, intentions, relations of music. I suppose in short, you sort of saw how the sausage was made and for some time couldn't unsee it. But it's a relief to me to hear that you've regained your appreciation for music. I won't call it bad music, but let's just say music with a different relationship to craftsmanship, maybe. And this is in particular because I know that Darwin, late in his life, lamented the fact that he hadn't read more poetry when he had the ability to appreciate it. He felt that his studies had prevented him in the end from appreciating poetry as he had when he was young. And so it's good to hear that with practice, or with lack of practice, as the case may be, this appreciation can come back. Brian, it's been a while. For context, I am now in the mountains in Bulgaria, in a small town called Bansko. It's mostly a ski resort, but then when the season finishes, as is the case now, it turns into a quiet spot for digital nomads of sorts. And thank you so much for your reflection. I really appreciated you bringing in Sappho and how, indeed, even though we have very little material from her, she still makes a deep impression and resonates throughout our culture. And I think that in itself is, is an act of beauty that is not to be underestimated. It's also really interesting you mention poetry and how Tolstoy felt that he could appreciate it less after learning to write, I imagine, as I am now allowing myself to dabble in that way. I have a weekly, what I call, heart practice, in which I lead a session where people can express themselves, 
The point is not so much what is expressed through art, but more the relationship we have with ourselves while creating. And I've noticed that in the past few sessions, I felt called to write some poetry, something I've never thought of before. And so I'm guessing that I'm tapping into the unfiltered and as of yet unpolished way that I can enjoy that, both the reading and the writing, because I don't know much about it. And now it's been a few weeks on my end. Sometimes one minute can take longer than expected. I think it's beautiful to end on poetry, and I'm very glad to hear that you're writing it for what sounds like the first time or maybe an early attempt. I haven't written a lot for years. I used to have a practice of writing sonnets and other rigid forms. You'll probably be unsurprised to learn that I'm attracted to metrical and difficult poetry. And yeah, it's a good moment to think about bringing myself back to that practice and to the practice of reading poetry. I think you're now in Berlin, if I'm not mistaken, and I hope this finds you well and that you are having a beautiful time. Yes, I am in Berlin, indeed. And what better way to end this than with poetry, as you said. It makes me think back and reflect on your original prompt about enjoyment and quality or beauty and about how learning more or practicing a craft influences that. And so I'm imagining now that our appreciation of poetry is very different from the perspective of me almost never having written any and you having had an extensive and deep practice in this. And I look forward to discovering more about that later. Thank you, Brian. <laughs>